0: Good morning. As Landon mentioned, we will be speaking about Jesus in the garden this morning. If you would, grab a Bible and turn to Luke, the 22nd chapter. We're going to take our text from Luke, the 22nd chapter, starting in the 39th verse. Verse. Luke 22, starting in verse 39. And he, Jesus, came out and went, as he was wont, to the Mount of Olives. And his disciples also followed him. And when he was at the place, he said unto them, Pray that ye enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine, be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose up from prayer and he was come to the disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said unto them, Why sleep ye? Rise and pray, lest ye enter into temptation." And while he yet spake, behold, a multitude, and he that was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before him and drew near unto Jesus to kiss him. And Jesus said unto him, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? And when they which were about him saw what would follow, they said unto him, Lord, shall we smite with the sword? And one of them smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And Jesus answered and said, Suffer ye thus far? And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said unto the chief priests and captains of the temple and the elders which were come to him, Be ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves. When I was daily with you in the temple, ye stretched forth no hands against me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Jesus and his disciples had just concluded the Passover meal. Jesus teaches his disciples about love and service when he kneels down and washes their feet. He talks to them about what is about to happen and he institutes the Lord's Supper that we just partake in. During the course of that meal, Judas has left and he's on his way to betray Jesus. And at the conclusion of the Passover meal, Jesus and the rest of the disciples leave... The upper room where they were gathered and they head out into the streets of Jerusalem. They go, they go out the eastern gate of the city and they cross over the, book of, the brook of Kidron. And as they ascend the Mount of Olives, they come to an enclosed area called Gethsemane, which means oil press. Apparently it was a private olive grove that Jesus has permission to frequent. Jesus leaves most of the apostles near the entrance of the garden and He takes Peter, James, and John to the interior of the garden. He urges the apostles to pray so that they wouldn't fall into temptation. As Jesus enters this garden, the battle for the fate of the souls of mankind begins. And you might... Think that the suffering of Jesus started at Golgotha. Instead, his suffering begins in Gethsemane. He begins to face temptations and trials and stresses. By this point, Jesus had already spoken numerous times about what would happen to him, but it was on this night that the full weight of what was about to happen to him begins to press down on him, and he begins to face the onslaught of Satan. At times, I think it's hard for us to wrap our minds around the seriousness of his suffering. Between Matthew, Mark, and and Luke, there are three different words used to describe the inner turmoil and anguish that Jesus begins to feel in his suffering. His sorrow is so strong, he feels like he is about to die. The battle between God and Satan was raging that night in the garden. And Jesus knew it. He felt it. He knew the cost of that battle. And he knew his role in the war. He knew that before the war was over, he would be taken captive. He knew that before victory would come pain and anguish. He knew that before He would ascend to the right hand of the Father, He would taste the bitter cup. He knew that before the stone would be rolled back on Sunday, there would be the cross and all that came with it on Friday. And as Jesus faces this onslaught, He begins to pray to His Father in heaven, let this cup Pass from me. Before Jesus that night, metaphorically, was a cup. A a cup that he knew that he would have to drink from. And the idea of drinking that cup made him sorrowful unto death. Even to the point of sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. But what was it about this cup that was so agonizing, so stressful... To Jesus. What was it that caused him to beg his father in heaven for another way? What was it that was so bad that he was tempted not to drink of it? Maybe it was that he knew what was waiting for him the next day. He knew the next day was the cross and he had no doubt seen crucifixion. He saw the effects of crucifixion and what it did to people that had to undergo that. He had seen the pain that people had to endure to go through that. Is that what he's referring to about this cup that he was about to drink from? I think that it was was more than that. Jesus knew that he was about to endure things that were worse than the physical pain of the cross. In the cup that Jesus was about to drink were things that were worse than physical pain. First, Jesus was about to, for the first time, experience the burden associated with sin. And you might be saying, Well, how, how could Jesus experience that? He was he he was sinless, right? But Paul reminds us in Second Corinthians, the fifth chapter, and the twenty first verse, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Peter says in 1 Peter, the second chapter, in the 24th verse, Who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. Who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, Jesus would bear the sins of the world. He would face the wrath of God because of that sin. And he faces the consequence of sin and the the guilt of that sin. And not just for one man, but for all men. He bore the sins of the entire world and the history of mankind on his body that day. Christ knew how much God hated sin and he knew that he alone would be the one to pay the penalty for the accumulated sin of all mankind. Also, beyond just the physical pain, he was facing death. And death is something for sinful man, not for the the God-man. Romans 6 and 23 says, The wages of sin is death. And ever since sin entered into the world in the garden, man has faced death. And on this night in a different garden, Jesus is staring a certain death in the face. Alfred Ederschein once said, "And beyond this lies the deep, unutterable mystery of Christ, bearing the penalty due to our sin, bearing our death, bearing the penalty of the broken law, the accumulated guilt of humanity, and the holy wrath of the righteous judge upon him. But in addition to, to physical death, there was a form of spiritual death that he would experience. Because he would take the sins of the world, he would face something that he had never, as the Son of God, experienced before. He would experience a feeling of separation from his Father in heaven. Isaiah the 59th chapter in the second verse says, But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sin has hid his face from you that he will not hear. And on this night Jesus knew that if he drank from that cup and took on the sins of mankind, he would experience a separation between him and God. And you can hear the desperation in his voice the next day as he cries out, Why have you forsaken me? He knew all of these things waited for him the next day. And can you imagine the the strain and the stress and the temptation that he faced? How his flesh must have been screaming, Don't do this! You don't have to, you you can just call down those angels and we'll go right back up to heaven. This doesn't have to happen. You don't have to do it. And I'm sure that Satan was right there reminding him of these things, whispering him these things into his ear as he prayed. But Jesus doesn't give in. After he completes his first prayer, he goes to check on Peter, James, and John. John but they're sleeping. Jesus returns a second time in prayer and He asks again for this cup to pass from Him. And then a third time He prays for this cup to pass away. Here in the garden, Satan is whispering to Jesus, God's way is too hard. It'll be too much pain, too much anguish, too much suffering. It isn't necessary. But thanks be to God that on this night in the garden, just as He had done in the wilderness, Jesus faced those temptations. And he overcame them. And you, many might think that the battle was won at, at, at Calvary. Others think that the sign of victory is the empty tomb. And those are the places where the act was carried out. But it was here in the garden on this night in Gethsemane that the decision was made to carry out God's will. So as Jesus completes these prayers, he gets up and he heads towards the entrance of the garden. He sees Judas the band of soldiers and Jewish leaders approaching. Of course, by this time, Judas has betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He and the soldiers uh, probably look for Jesus in the apostles in the upper room where they had had the Passover. And when they don't find them there, Judas knew exactly where to look. Because it was likely that Jesus, like I mentioned earlier, frequented this garden. So he leads the soldiers To Jesus, there he approaches Jesus, gives him a kiss on the cheek, the the sign that he had arranged with the captors to to show them which one was Jesus. Of course, Peter tries to save Jesus, and he goes and he tries to murder Malchus, but Jesus takes compassion on Malchus and he heals him. And then Jesus captures and he's captures and he's led off to his destiny at Calvary the next day. Perhaps no other time in the earthly life of Jesus did he face such stress and anguish and temptation than what he faced in the garden of Gethsemane. And despite all that he went through that night, he never once sinned, never once disobeyed God. That night in the garden, he perfectly carried out God's will. And we should never forget that, that, yes, Jesus was, he was 100% God, but he was also 100% man. And his flesh faced all the same temptations that we face. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted, tempted like as we are, yet without sins, the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 4 and verse 15. Jesus faced temptation. He faced all that we face, and he understands what it's like to be tempted. C.S. Lewis wrote, A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside of us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because He was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. So we can look to Jesus. We can look into the garden. And we can learn some valuable lessons on what it's like to deal with and overcome temptation in our lives. So for the the rest of our time, I want for us to look at four things that we learn from the Garden of Gethsemane and what we can do to apply these things to our lives and overcome temptation and help us deal with these trials and temptations in our own lives. The first thing that I want for us to notice uh, in this time of temptation is that Christ spent much time in prayer. Sometime between the end of the Passover meal and the story that we read, Christ prays the prayer that we read in John, the 17th chapter. He urges the disciples to pray once they get to the garden. And then Christ spends probably several hours in prayer that night, humbled before God, laying his thoughts and his desires before God, but also praying that whatever the answer to these prayers were, that God's will would be carried out. Christ says several times there in the garden that, that this time of prayer would help them deal with temptation. When we face times of trial and temptations, do we take the time to pray? Have we made prayer a part of our lives? And I don't mean the the quick little prayer that we say before a meal. I I don't mean the, the routine prayers that we might say at bedtime. I don't even mean the two or three prayers that we've said during this service here this morning. I mean, do we spend time speaking to our Father in heaven? Do we humble ourselves before God and spend time communicating with Him? James, the first chapter and the fifth verse says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that give it to all men liberally, and it not, and it shall be given unto him. James, the fourth chapter and the eighth verse says, Draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts ye double-minded. In the garden this night, Christ knew that the next day what he would be subjected to. And he knew that he needed to draw close to God for strength and guidance. During our times of temptation, do we do the same? It's interesting to look at the difference in the outcomes of the different people that were there in the garden that night. You have Jesus and you have the apostles there in the garden Christ spends several hours in prayer, drawing close to his Father in heaven, and then the apostles, on the other hand, are asleep. And when they are faced with temptation and trials, what happens? Jesus is able to carry out his Father's will. The apostles, though, who, like I said, spend several hours asleep, some run and hide when they're faced with trials over the next day or two. Others deny that they even knew Christ. And as I look at my life and in the times of, of, of trial and, 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 and temptation and the things that I've dealt with, the times where I have failed most often, if I look back at those times, often they are those times where I fail to spend time drawing close to God in prayer. Prayer is more than just an item on the checklist that we're supposed to do to make God happy. And I think that's, that's how we treat prayer A lot of times we say that we we need to make sure that we pray, and so we say our routine prayer that we can say without even thinking about it, without even considering what we're actually saying, and we make sure that we say that so that we can check the box on the list that we've said our prayer. And we treat prayer like that sometimes. But prayer is more than just an item on a checklist. Instead, it's an avenue to approach the throne of God with humility. It's an opportunity to speak to God and through it receive His blessings and strength to carry out His will. Now, Does that mean that we're always going to get the answer that we're looking for in our prayers? And that's an important lesson that we learn about prayer in the garden. Jesus prays three times to remove this cup from Him. And three times, God tells Him no. Not because he doesn't love Jesus, but because God's will must be carried out. And God has never promised us that the answers to our prayers will be yes. But he has promised us that he will provide us with what we need to carry out his will. And he has promised us that through prayer we can have a peace that passes all understanding. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus, Paul would write in Philippians, the fourth chapter. In this night in the garden, as Jesus is facing tremendous stress and strain and temptation, he uses prayer so that he'll have the strength and the peace and the calm that we see him display the next day as he makes his way to Calvary. The next thing that I want for us to notice from the garden and remember in our times of temptation is that God will always provide for us. His providential care and and his promises are with us during these times of temptation. As Jesus is in the garden and completes the first prayer, Luke 22 and verse 43 says that an angel appeared to him and strengthened him. This is reminiscent of what happened in the wilderness as Jesus endures those temptations. In Matthew, the fourth chapter, it says that angels came and ministered unto him. And you might be thinking, well, of course, Jeff, it's Jesus. He's he's the Son of God. Of course he's going to have things like that, angels coming and ministering to him. But I would turn your attention to an interesting verse we find in Hebrews, the first chapter, verses 13 through 14. It says, But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? The Hebrew writer says that these ministering spirits, these angels are sent to minister to those that are heirs of salvation. That's you and that's me. I won't pretend to know exactly how all of this works and how angels interact with us today. Completely none of us know exactly how all of that works. But I do believe what God says. And just like Jesus was ministered to by angels in the garden that night, I believe that if we will draw close to God, He has promised us that He will provide for us. And as part of this promise to provide for us during these times of temptation, we are promised that no matter what we face, with God's help, it won't be more than what we are able to bear. First Corinthians the tenth chapter verse, uh, verse uh, thirteen says, There hath no temptation taken you but such as common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that which ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that ye may be able to bear it. God has not promised us that we won't face temptation. He has not promised us that we won't go through things in life that will be difficult. In fact, quite the opposite. He has promised us that there will be times that we will suffer. He has promised us that there will be times that we will be tempted. There will be times that will bring us to our knees. There will be times in our lives where we question whether or not we will be able to endure it. But He has also promised us that no matter what we are facing, if we will submit ourselves to God with His help, not on our own, but with His help, we will be able to overcome those temptations. He will provide us with a way of escape. God will allow us to walk through some pretty dark valleys in our lives. But He will always be there to help us through it and to make it to the other side if we will submit ourselves to His will. With prayer, with His Word, with these ministering spirits, with the Holy Spirit, He has provided us and given us these great and precious promises to help us through the trials and temptations of this life. The third thing that we can take from looking unto Christ in the garden of Gethsemane is that his attitude towards suffering and temptations. He viewed suffering and temptations in the proper way. We mentioned several times how that Christ prayed for this cup to pass from him, that he would not have to drink from that cup. But it's important to notice the second part of that verse when he says, Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. While Christ was in anguish and pain and going through a tremendous season of temptation, his attitude towards these trials was, if I have to go through this, if I have to drink from this cup, if I have to walk through this, God, let your will be done and not my own. He viewed this trial, this cup that he was asked to drink from, as an opportunity to carry out the will of God. So often... When we are tried and we're tested and we're tempted and we go through these times in our life, we can fall into an attitude of, why me? Why do I have to deal with this? Why do I have to, to go through this? Why do I have to carry this burden? Why me? Why, God, are you asking me to have to deal with this? Instead, we should view these, as, these times as opportunities to carry out God's will. I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul when he, when he talks about his thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians the 12, chapter, and we aren't going to take time to read this, but Paul prays for this thorn to, to be taken away from him, and, and much like Jesus, he's told no. And Paul follows the example of Christ and says that, that when he is in those times of trial and persecutions and temptations, times when he is weak, he will use those opportunities to follow the will of God and use those times of opportunity to not show his own strength, to show the world the strength that we have through God. When we view temptation and trials as an opportunity to carry out the will of God, the people around us can gain strength through the example that we give them. We gain wisdom and experience that will allow us to minister to others in ways that we never could before. We're changed and shaped and transformed into the servant that God wants us to be. But it starts with our attitude during those times. And the last thing that I want for us to notice from this story of Jesus in the garden, and it stems from his attitude uh, there in the garden. And when we take the attitude of using those times of temptation, trial, as opportunities to do God's will, our our focus will shift towards others. Again, like I said, so often when we struggle, or when we're going through times of temptation, we begin to ask, why me? Why me? Why is this happening to me? Why am I having to go through this? And our focus turns to ourselves. We look at ourselves and we say, why do I have to do this? Poor me. But notice Christ's attitude during this time. Instead of only being focused on himself, he shows great concern for others. Notice the compassion that Christ shows in the midst of his suffering. Some of us, whenever the slightest thing goes wrong, we don't have time for anything or anyone else. The slightest bump in the road and we go and, we, we go and retreat and we, we expect for others to come and minister to us. But notice what Christ did just before he was in the garden, even while he was in the midst of the suffering in the garden. In the midst of these trials that he He endures, he prays for others, he prays for his disciples, he urges the soldiers to let his disciples go. He even shows compassion to Malchus, one of the people that that are there to capture him, and he he heals him. Even during the most trying times of Jesus' life, he showed compassion and love for others around him. And we would do well to follow his example. When we begin to struggle, to struggle, when we begin to be tempted and tried, let's turn our focus away from ourselves and show compassion and love to those around us. There's an old song that I think of every time I read this story of Jesus in the garden. It says, Jesus prayed in the garden and he poured out his heart for me. There has been no love shown by mortals, as in dark Gethsemane. And this morning we have looked at Jesus and looked into His example in the garden to see what He did during a time of intense suffering and temptation. We saw how He prayed, how God provided for Him during this struggle, how His attitude towards suffering led Him to view this as an opportunity to follow God's will and show compassion and love for those around Him. And as we close, I want for us to notice one final thing. Sometime after the conclusion of the Passover meal and before his entrance into the garden, Jesus prays. He prays for the Son to be glorified. He prays for his disciples, and he even prays for you and for me. In John, the 17th chapter of the 20th verse, it says, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Remember that. That on this night, as Jesus is about to endure all these trials and all these temptations, He knew that you would need a Savior. And He knew what it would take to secure that salvation. And He had a choice that night as He was in the garden. And make make no mistake about it, it wasn't an easy choice. We talked about how He felt... Stress and anxiety to the point of death, he felt like. He had a choice between returning to heaven or going through all of these things that he would endure over that day. And he chose you. He chose what you needed rather than what his flesh and what his body wanted. Because he loved you, he was willing to endure And drink from that cup that was before him that night. And thanks be to God that he chose to do that. God loves you. Don't ever forget that. No matter what you've done, no matter your past, no matter your history, no matter the temptations that you face, no matter the failures in your life, God loves you. And he's provided a way for you to draw close to him. Jesus shed His blood so that you can be washed and you can be sanctified and cleansed in God's sight. And all He asks you to do is submit yourself and your life to Him by allowing your faith to move you to repent of your sins and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and submit to Him in baptism. Perhaps you've never done that, and you'd like to do that this morning. We'd be happy to do that. Perhaps you're going through one of those times of trial and temptation and struggle in your own life, and you like the prayers of the church, we'd be happy to do that. If there's anything we can do for you, please come as we stand and as we sing.